All right, First John, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28, and we're going to work our way through chapter 3, verse 10, if you guys will listen fast enough, okay? So Lord, speak to us through your word. We love it. We cherish your word in this house. Nourish our souls. Lord, as we leave this place, would we leave better disciples of Jesus? So in your holy name we pray. All God's people said amen. Amen. All right, First John chapter 2, verse 28. Get yourself there. Matthew chapter 24 is one of the chief, if not the primary passages of Scripture that the church has always looked at that deals with the end times. And so you guys know there's a ton of debate about the exact timing of Jesus's return, the timing of the millennial reign. Um, Matthew 24 becomes a, a great passage, a great chapter to discuss and argue when you're trying to deal with uh, your theology or your doctrine surrounding the end times. Now, your doctrine surrounding the end times is wrong, and mine is right, just so you know. Um, but <laughs> I'm teasing. But it's there that we see that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. There be wars and rumors of wars. Many will come in Jesus' name, claiming to be Messiah, to lead people astray. And it's there that Jesus says the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall. And we'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So in Matthew 24, we're getting all of this. There's a coming conclusion to this mess that we're in. And as we exit Matthew chapter 24 and we enter into Matthew 25, we get these three instances where Jesus is talking to the disciples about how to wait for the coming of the Lord. So Matthew 24, I'm just showing you themes here because I'm trying to show you how uh, our text will relate to these themes. Matthew 24, verse 45 through 47 who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He goes on to say that the wicked says, my master is delayed. And so he begins to beat other servants and get drunk and live in gluttony. And so at the conclusion of Matthew 24, Jesus says that there is a blessed and faithful servant who is waiting diligently for the return of the master. And when the master comes, he'll find them caring for the house well. As you transition into Matthew 25, Matthew 25, 1 through 4, um, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with them. Now, watch the flow. So we've got a wise servant caring for his house, waiting for the master with diligence. And now he transitions straight into this imagery of bridegrooms or, or, or bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom. Some have oil and some don't have oil. The wise are prepared. The foolish bring nothing with them. And then when we just slide through into Matthew 25, he takes us to the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each according to his ability. And then he went away. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also... He who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 19, listen closely. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. Go up to the parable before. The bridegroom comes. 
five are, uh, are, are left with no oil and five are prepared. Go up to the section before. The master of the house comes. There's a good servant, a wise and faithful servant who deals with the other servants of the house with justice and care. And there's a wicked servant who gets drunk, beats everybody and lives in gluttony. There's a coming of the master of the house. There's a coming of the bridegroom. There's a coming of the great investor. And on that day, we will give account. So the implication of the flow of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is that there will be a waiting period. And no one knows how long it will be because many will fall asleep and many will fall in sin, but some will wait really well for the great return of the master of the house, the bridegroom coming for his bride and the great investor. And the implication that you're intended to receive as you read this portion of Matthew's gospel slowly is you better watch your heart in the waiting. Watch your heart in the waiting. Now the waiting does a couple things. One, you remember uh, Peter tells us that he's not slow in his coming as some would count slowness, but he's patient towards us, not wishing that any would perish. So Peter said the waiting period will be long and slow to some, but he's not slow. He's patient wanting people to come to repentance. So in the waiting period, the church is given the commission to work the harvest and to bring people to repentance. The longer Jesus delays in his coming, the more time the church has to preach this gospel and win souls to the kingdom. So in the waiting, by God, get busy in the harvest. There's another element of the waiting, though, is that the waiting is it's proving, it's trying, it tests our faith. Every promise, when you think of scripture, just kind of jog your mind. Like Abraham's promised a son, but man, that son doesn't come for decades, right? And you just work through. Joseph is said to that his brother, he has this dream that his brothers are going to bow before him and he's going to be lifted up to a place of leadership, but that didn't come for decades. Faith is waiting well with the promise. And no one in all of church history gets to escape the proving period that is required to test your faith. Okay, so as we ret- wait the return of the Lord, there's a proving period of our faith. We, we have to learn to be patient and persevere, and we need to be diligently focused on Jesus awaiting his return with integrity. Okay, so now as we shift into 1 John again, preach, baby, just let it loose. Um, we preach uh, <laughs> as we shift, sweet babies. As we shifted to to First John again, remember our context, okay? We're dealing with house churches in Ephesus. John the Apostle is really old. And he's writing to these house churches in Ephesus who are being um, deluded, who have false teachers invading, and people are trying to get them to turn from the true gospel and to live and chase after things that promise immediate fulfillment. The false teaching always promises immediate fulfillment. And John's bringing them into eschatological view. He's telling them we're awaiting the arrival of Jesus. And he's saying, don't be, don't be tempted or baited out of the true faith with the promise of false immediate fulfillment. He's saying to the church, come back to the center and wait for the return of Jesus. When we see him, then we will be like him. In other words, the fulfillment is only in the return of a Messiah. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm going to get you there. I'm teasing. 
First, first John chapter two, verse 28. We're going to work through 310. You guys with me so far? I had a big cup of coffee and a couple weeks off. So deal with me. All right. Um, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, say it with me, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter three, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now we are God's children, but what we're becoming has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Say, shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in the first coming. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, jog your memory briefly and consider with me our last session of studying uh, John's epistle. Remember we said that John, in our last couple weeks, he started to insert all of this um, end times language. Eschatology is the word. And remember we said we want to approach John's epistle remembering that John is the revelator after all, right? He wrote Revelation. He has this experience where God reveals to him a great revelation about the end time. And as he addresses the church, he's going to start to appeal to some of his end time theology. Remember in chapter 2, verse 8, he said that darkness is passing away, that there's a passing away of darkness. In chapter 2, verse 18, he told us, children, this is the last hour. So he said the church exists in the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. So as John approaches a church who is dealing with false teachers and deception and false teaching and people trying to bait them into a new gospel that promises immediate fulfillment, John begins to talk to them about eschatology. And he says, we are in the last days. Don't you know that many antichrists have already come and the final antichrist is soon to arrive. And so when the church is dealing with false teaching, John says, position yourself in biblical eschatology and recognize that there are antichrists wanting to lead you away from the true gospel. And you need to persevere in the true faith Wait with diligence. You guys with me so far? Let's approach our passage this morning. Now, little children, abide in him. 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence. When he appears, that Greek word there is parousia. It's all through the New Testament. And the appearing refers to the second coming of Jesus. Think of Acts 1, verse 10 through 11. The disciples are gazing into heaven because they've just watched Jesus ascend with the clouds. And as they look around, there are two angels standing clothed in white. And the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. So the parousia is that hour in history yet to come when Jesus returns on the clouds in the same way in which you saw him go. And what John is lobbying before us now is that at the parousia, some will stand with confidence while others shrink back with shame. The church is awaiting that parousia And John tells us that those who hold fast to the pure, original, faithful gospel message will have confidence at the return of Christ. Now watch what he says. Abide in him so that at the parousia you'll have confidence. Now let your mind jump to John 15, also written by John, where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch abides in the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. And there we see that John has a thematic implication to this line abide in me and we in the west especially in charismatic cultures we always interpret these lines of scripture to communicate intimacy that jesus wants us to abide and be nourished by the vine this is intimate language um have fellowship with jesus and it is it is certainly intimate language but part of that passage of scripture that we slide over is when jesus says abide in me and let my word abide in you So now it's not just about intimacy, but it's about doctrine. And and we hate this because we we want to experience an encounter. But guys, listen to me. We want to encounter with the real Holy Ghost. I don't want intimacy and encounter with just any old spirit. I want the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I, I don't want encounter and intimacy with any old demonic entity. I want the spirit of God who calls the earth to come into being. I want the spirit of God who breathes on the church. And in order, hear me, if you just want intimacy, you might crawl in the bed with any old woman. But when you want a godly marriage, you get in bed with your wife. And, and part of abiding in his word is drawing the, a good delineation between who is the real Christ. And who is the Antichrist? And the great flaw of the charismatic church is wanting experience, 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 and never stopping to ask the question, who are we experiencing? We better make sure we're experiencing the Holy Ghost. The third person of the triune God. Abide in him. And here he has in mind doctrine. Because this church is being promised experience. They're being told, if you would come to our Gnostic revelation, and again, Gnosticism is the idea, it's a false gospel that says that the whole creation is dualistic. Everything that is matter is evil, therefore this podium is evil. And everything that is spiritual is good, no matter what kind of spiritual, it's good. And the gospel is so far from that. This podium is absolutely all moral. I'm sure it's some kind of plastic. Okay, and everything that is spiritual is not good but the spiritual realm is filled with darkness. And so they're they're being told, just come play in the spiritual. Let your body have its desires. That doesn't matter. 
Just come play in the spiritual. You'll be enlightened. You'll have fulfillment. And John's saying, oh, good God, abide in him. Go back to the faithful gospel. Return to what you heard at the beginning. And if you continue on with that gospel, then at the parousia, you will not shrink back in shame. But they, when Jesus returns, will cower with fear. We can stop right there and move on, but I've got 15 more pages. I want to hold fast to the apostolic word. Any who redefine this message, any who pervert this message, any who twist it to fit their own desires and promote their own agendas, they will cower with fear at the return of Jesus. But for us, let us cling to the simple, plain, straightforward, historic doctrines that Christianity is founded upon. Somebody say, amen. Then in verse 29, we did one verse. Verse 29, he moves towards, he says that there are some who have been born of him. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so he's moving into truth claims. He's making basic, logical truth claims, and he's actually cornering us into an evangelical position. Now, I'm going to shock 98% of you. Evangelical has nothing to do with your political persuasion. It's actually a doctrinal position. Okay, I'm sorry that the news media has twisted that word. But evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, which just means gospel. And evangelical means we believe that the gospel of Jesus, when received in faith, causes people to be born again. And the born again experience, he says, uh, later in chapter 3, he says that those who have the seed of God in them, who have been born again, cannot keep on sinning. And he's making a basic kind of logical truth claim like this. Fish swim. If it can't live in water, it's not a fish. And that's essentially the, the, the line of reasoning he's using. Christians pursue righteousness. Because they've been born again, they have a new nature. This is like a kind of an ontological argument or an argument about nature. Christians have the seed of God, and so they naturally, organically pursue godliness. And anyone who does not naturally, organically, sincerely pursue godliness, they're a fish that can't live in water. In other words, he's saying they're not Christian. Chapter 3, verse 9, at the end of our text, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Chapter 3 opens with this beautiful language. See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we've been called children of God, and so we are. Now, so what he's shown us is that being born again, we've had a nature change. We've had a change in our nature. We've come into a new state of existence where God's spirit dwells in us and we desire godliness and holiness. And then he shows us that when, we've, when we're born again, we enter into a new relational status with God where we are now his children and he lavishes great love upon us. There is a transition that takes place as the gospel is received. So we're transformed in nature and we're relationally grafted into God's family. This is just the gospel, right? Just straight gospel. 
But keep in mind again, church, what John is doing. He's giving straight gospel to a people who have been so polluted and perverted. He's just giving straight gospel to a people who have been taught that if they would chase after this new experience, they could be elevated in their existence. They could be enlightened. They could have more now. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You've been born of the Spirit, and God has lavished His love upon us. And what we will be, we are not yet. Now, if I could just do like a little bit of um, cultural contextualization here. I think that, we, we said this before, that John showed us in the previous chapter that the Antichrist spirit, he has two primary ambitions. Um, his, his main goal is to resist Jesus and destroy the church, but he does it in two ways. One, he attacks the church violently from the outside. And so like Domitian um, in, in church history or Nero in church history tried to intimidate and destroy the church with violence. And in the Middle East today, that's the way that the enemy works. He tries to destroy God's people in the Middle East with violence. But we said the second way that the Antichrist spirit works, which is happening here in Ephesus with these people, is he doesn't try to destroy the church from the outside with violence, but he tries to infiltrate the church and pollute it from the inside. And we said, we think this is what's happening in American Western Christianity, that the enemy with the Antichrist spirit is trying to pollute us from the inside. And when we think that way, then we recognize that what's being taught in pulpits around our nation is this kind of false concept of love in which love can never confront anything. And if you ever confront or correct anything, then you're actually filled with hate. And so the church should never speak to sexuality or biology or the church should never talk about things like purity in marriage or or the idea that the man and the woman both have a role in the home. And so the idea that's being taught in the West is that there is a higher form of love that's being braced by hyper-liberal Christianity that we know nothing about. And that higher form of love, that higher state of existence, never confronts, never challenges. And that place, you can live however you want to live, just pat everyone on the back, and by God, be a universalist. And we let it go on in our pulpits and we just continue on as if nothing's happening. We laugh it off. And that's a pollution of the gospel. There will be a shrinking back in shame when Jesus returns. And I want to just make this acknowledgement. For 60 plus years now, maybe 70 years, in the West, the father has been so shoved out of the home. We've embraced political structures that that incentivize the father to leave and into other Certain communities, certain certain pockets of people. I, I grew up fatherless. My father left. And like fatherlessness has so been a plague on humanity. And then we wonder why the enemy's trying to teach us that love never corrects. As if those two things are not related. First, we destroyed the father. And then we redefined love as having no corrective structure to it. So a generation of people... They grew up only with the maternal nature, nurturing and affirming. And then they're told, if anyone ever corrects you, they're hateful. But, but the scripture says, see how, the, how, how God the Father has loved us. He lavishes love upon us. Then he moves to this profound, earth-shattering proclamation. He says, we have been born again, but yes, we are not yet what we will be. And this is where the enemy plays, okay? This is where there's bait. This is where there's an enticement. In this Christian life, 
I have been born again, born of the Spirit. I have a new seed within me. I have new desires. I have new longings. And I'm pressing on towards purity in this Christian life. But I still fight. And I still wrestle. And there are days I wake up tired and frustrated. And I have to repent of my sin. And I have to cast off bitterness and choose to love. There is a great wrestling that I'm living in. And the enemy comes on the side and says, Oh, you know why you're wrestling? Because you haven't attained what we can offer you. And so I think in our culture, the enemy over here is saying, you know, your problem is you keep fighting with sin, but just come into love and you'll never have to deal with sin. Just come into love and you can live however you want to fulfill your fleshly desires and nobody really cares. We just love each other. The enemy is enticing a generation out of what the Bible calls purifying yourself as he is pure. But the gospel, the plain Christian proclamation is that I am not yet what I will be. And you can't make me what I'm going to be with your false teaching. You can't make me what I'm going to be with your Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness theology. You can't make me what I'm going to be with your super shallow, flippant, charismatic, uh, dream in a circle theology. You can't make me what I'm going to be with your false doctrine. The experience that I am living for, waiting for, that will make me what I'm going to be is the return of Jesus Christ. And here, watch, here, watch. My longing, my desiring, my waiting is for the return of Jesus. And when they bait me over here and say, you could have higher experiences, play with our crystals and see what happens. Come to our psychics and maybe you'll you'll learn the future. Come over here and play and we'll give you new experience. I have to respond with there's only one experience that could ever satisfy me. It's the parousia. It's the day that Jesus returns. And when I see him, then I'll be like him. Y'all are like, don't give Caleb any more time off. We're born again, but we're not yet what we shall be. But the only thing that will make us what we shall be is the return of Jesus. And when he returns... His very presence, the revelation of seeing him will eradicate the presence of sin from our presence forever. The the problem is currently where I stand today is that I still have to fight sin, kill sin, and I'm glad to do it, right? When I'm good and strong, I'll put to death the flesh. And sin still has this ability through demonic powers and, and the temptations of the flesh to try to bait me, to try to talk me into, to try to lure me into. I'm in this wrestling, I'm fighting this fight but when jesus returns his glory the revelation of his face his beauty and majesty will finally and fully drive out the very presence of sin then i'll be what i'm going to be there are no shortcuts watch chapter 3 verse 3 those who thus hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. What is he saying? Those who are hoping for the return of Jesus, they actively, intentionally use every resource they can get their hands on to purify themselves. Meaning that the church is a place of discipleship where we read this word daily, where we pray daily, where we gather and share the Lord's table, where we confront one another about sin and challenge one another to live higher. We exhaust all of our tools, all of our resources to purify ourselves as he is pure as we wait the final day. 
And, and he's giving vision for the church. What does the church do? The church grows in discipleship, reads the word, prays, sings the Psalms, reminds one another of faithful historic doctrine, challenges one another. If you are a Christian, you should be growing in your discipleship process. If you're a Christian, avail yourself of every resource possible to purify yourself. Read this word, man. Pray fast. Not trying to earn salvation, we have it. But trying to purify ourselves from the works of darkness. And I'll summarize the, the last big chunk of our scripture reading this morning by highlighting for you one word. He says that anyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. That Greek word, um, a scholar, uh, last name Cruz points out, that Greek word anomia, lawlessness, in its full range of uses, as it's used in ancient literature, it really communicates rebellion. And oftentimes that word lawlessness, as it's used, communicates a kind of demonic rebellion. The Antichrist is, after, after all, called the man of lawlessness. So he says, whoever practices sin, now notice the distinction. He's not saying whoever fights with sin and sometimes loses. He's not saying the Christian who's trying to wrestle and showing up the small group and confessing their sin and, and is and muddy and bloody in their process. He's saying those who practice sin, those who make it a practice, those who promote it, those who say, hey, it's really not loving to teach people holiness. Just let them do what they want to do. He says what they're actually doing is they're participating in anomia or, or, or evil-inspired rebellion. And then he moves into this language, and you could be offended with this. I didn't write it. He moves into this language where he says, and by the way, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning continues on in their sinning, sinning unfettered, throws off all guide and instruction. Those people are of the devil. They're practicing the devil's lifestyle, and they will have a future like the devil. So John's saying, don't be baited by them. Don't let them lure you away from your purifying and your waiting and your longing and your desire for Jesus. Those who practice sin do not have God's seed. And they may promise some kind of experience and they may say that they're elevated and enlightened, but you will be fulfilled at the parousia. When you see him, you'll be like him. Now, I get that this might feel a little bit aggressive this morning, but uh, the Holy Ghost carried John along to write this, not Caleb. But the, but the implications would be that if we don't read the Scripture, live Orthodox Christianity, cling to the faithful, true gospel, then we will be ashamed at His coming. Then we are of the enemy's seed, Call yourself what you want to call yourself, but all those in him purify themselves as he is pure. The fundamental idea of like, of liberalism as a whole, not, not always, but particularly liberal theology, is that we're progressing beyond. That culturally, we're learning new things. When you talk to liberal theologians, sometimes they'll say things like, morality uh, comes from culture. Cultures decide what is moral. And we're just saying, like, there's absolute truth, man, in this word of God. There's an absolute standard. His name is Jesus. 
and, and we fall short and we repent and we confess and we're muddy and bloody and scratched and bruised, but we get up and we keep purifying ourselves as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. And I get that I'm not fully fulfilled today. And some, you know, kind of spiritualists might say, I'm satisfied and take my drugs and roll on the ground. And then maybe you'll have spiritual experiences where you could talk to a spirit guide and you could be satisfied too. I don't think you're really satisfied either. I think you're demon filled. I, I am not yet fully and finally satisfied, but nothing will fully and finally satisfy me like the return of Jesus. That's the longing I'm, I'm, I'm living for. That's the desire I'm living for. And that is the confession of the born again saint. And it's not we're progressing beyond the faithful historic gospel. It's we're digging deeper into it to glean from it, to chew upon it, to cherish it. Now, Grace, if you come for me, if you want to stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close.